Is it possible to be metabolically healthy and overweight or obese? We don't have to look very far to find sources that will tell us that in fact this is possible. But perhaps a more important question is, is this something that's reasonable or feasible for most people? So in today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the science of how to know whether the fat that we're carrying and our ability to use it are healthy and are putting us in a good position or conversely are putting us at risk for chronic disease in the future. the 1960s and 70s, the term healthy obesity started to make its way into the way that we talk about health. And that term got kind of pushed to the side for a few years, but today it's back in the mainstream. So I want to take this opportunity today to clarify some of the science around that topic because it's one that can be confusing even for the informed reader or listener. And I have to be upfront with you because as a doctor, I see a lot of really bad things happen to people who are either overweight and in particular, those who are obese. And so my natural inclination is to say that the idea that someone could be overweight or obese and healthy, and in particular, obese and healthy is kind of unfounded to say the least. And there's a fundamental idea in science, which is that Reality is a lot stronger than the scrutiny that we can apply to it. So if we want to have confidence and faith in the things that we believe in and in our hypotheses, then the very first thing that we have to do that any good scientist knows is that we first have to try to disprove our own hypotheses or beliefs. If after applying the available evidence and data, if our beliefs and hypotheses are able to stand on their own two feet, then we know that they're worthy of further pursuit. So that's the approach that I'm going to take in this episode. First, we're going to talk about some general principles that are well established in the research about how to know whether the fat that we're carrying is healthy or not. And then we're going to jump right into the center of the controversy, which is to start at the beginning, the obesity paradox. So let's first go over some principles about how to know whether fat is healthy or unhealthy. We have at least three things to consider. Location or structure, where is the fat located? And then number two, microstructure, what do the fat cells look like and what are they doing at that level? And number three, what are the fat cells doing at the physiological level? So let's start with number one, structure and location. Where is the fat that we're carrying located? There are three places where we can store fat. The first one is subcutaneous. So sub means underneath and cutaneous refers to the skin. And so subcutaneous fat is fat that's stored underneath the skin. It's on the back of the arms, it's on the thighs, it's the love handles. It's the stuff that a lot of people tend to obsess over. And ironically, it's also the very fat that serves an important purpose from a hormonal perspective that we'll talk about actually in our next episode. Subcutaneous fat is something that we generally need. We don't need too much of it. Too much of it can be harmful, but it's generally not the fat that you kind of want to worry about. The fat that you want to worry about, conversely, is called visceral fat. That is the second place that we can store fat. So viscera refers to organ. 
That's what viscera means. And so visceral fat is stored around our organs. It's within our intra-abdominal cavity. It surrounds our gut. It surrounds our heart called epicardial and pericardial fat, which are actually two different things that we get into later. But visceral fat is associated with bad health outcomes. It's associated in particular with insulin resistance, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attacks, and ultimately higher risk of death. So visceral fat is bad news, and it's kind of like double bad news because it's really difficult to see. It's stored beneath all that muscle that's on the abdominal wall and beneath the uh, rib cage and the anatomy that surrounds the, the thorax. So we're gonna come back to that. The third place where we can store fat is ectopically. So ectopic fat is fat that's in a place where it is not supposed to be. That's what ectopic means from a biological perspective. Ectopic fat, when we think about it, it's generally we're thinking about organs like the liver. So normally the liver is composed of a relatively homogeneous cell population. There are various different structures and microstructures. And in ectopic fat deposition, the liver becomes speckled with fat. As we talked about in one of our first episodes, this can lead to inflammation and then ultimately fibrosis and scarring. And if it goes on for too long, this can lead to organ dysfunction and failure. So that's the structural level. Let's talk about the next topic, which is microstructural level. So healthy fat is composed of adipocytes. That's the term for a fat cell. And these adipocytes, if they're healthy, they're able to expand to accommodate more fat stores. They do that in response to a hormone called insulin. So when insulin comes along and triggers the signal that it's time to store energy as fat, a healthy fat cell is able to expand and grow. In unhealthy fat, the fat cells are no longer able to expand for a variety of reasons. The one that's getting a lot of attention right now and that I think is very important is a concept called adipocyte hypertrophy. So this is where your fat cells become bigger and bigger up to even a hundred or in some cases a thousand times their smallest size and because of this this places a lot of tension on the cell surface the membrane so when insulin comes along to these large fat cells and says it's time to store energy as fat the fat cell has to say no or i can't do much of that right now that's the first thing that happens with insulin resistance in fat cells The other thing that happens in an insulin-resistant fat cell is that insulin is not able to convince the fat cell to suppress normal levels of a process called lipolysis. So in lipolysis, a fat cell is going to be producing lots of fatty acids that leak out into the surrounding area and into the circulation. So the job of insulin normally is to suppress that process so that there's not too much of it. In an insulin-resistant large fat cell, lipolysis can't be suppressed. And the result of that is that fatty acids leak out into the surrounding area and into the circulation. And they make their way to distant organs where they trigger inflammation. And they also trigger the beginnings of cell death pathways. And so that's very important. So the fat that you store affects the rest of the body. It's not just where that fat is stored locally. And we've kind of already now gotten into number three, which is what are the fat cells doing at a physiological level. We talked about leakage of fatty acids if they become too big, inflammation within the fat tissue itself and at distant sites. And we also have dysregulated angiogenesis. So this is the dysregulated formation of new blood vessels. 
Now the role of dysregulated angiogenesis or formation of new blood vessels in fat tissue, that's still being worked out, but probably important nonetheless. There's also evidence for mitochondrial dysfunction in unhealthy fat tissue and fibrosis within the collagen matrix that surrounds those fat cells and holds them together. So that's a tour through the general characteristics that are well established that make fat tissue healthy or unhealthy. Now let's jump right into the center of the controversy, which is the obesity paradox. So what is the obesity paradox? The obesity paradox refers to the fact that some research studies seem to show a protective effect of obesity against the risk of death and complications from disease in very specific settings. Now, when this is talked about, a lot of people and a lot of authors will dismiss the obesity paradox in a phenomenon called reverse causality, which is part of the idea that we can't prove causality from associative data, or you can't infer causation from correlation data, which is an extremely good point, and I think that's extremely valid. But we have to consider other possibilities as well. So let's go through these. So the first explanation for the obesity paradox is that in fact, it may be the case that in some specific situations, it may be helpful to have a higher reserve of energy stores. And you can imagine that this may be the case in wasting diseases. So what would be examples of wasting diseases? That would be things like severe respiratory illness or end-stage kidney disease or cancer or severe infection or neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or in some cases, Parkinson's disease. And in fact, these are the very situations where we do see an obesity paradox tending to play out. You can imagine that starting from a higher body mass may be helpful. So that's the first explanation of the obesity paradox. The second explanation is that the obesity paradox may in fact not be an obesity paradox per se at all, but rather a mass paradox. And in particular, it may be a lean mass paradox in some situations. So there was a recent study and a couple of studies actually done that show that a higher lean body mass is associated with a lower risk of death. A recent study looked at cancer patients and what they found is that people who lacked lean muscle mass tended to do worse. They had a higher risk of death from cancer over time. But what they also found is that people who simultaneously both had low lean mass and high fat mass, a condition called sarcopenic obesity, they did even worse than the sarcopenic patients. So in other words, the people who had low muscle mass and high fat mass did worse than the people who had only low muscle mass. That kind of speaks to the idea that in fact, the obesity paradox may be more of a mass paradox rather than a fat mass paradox. So the third explanation for the obesity paradox is censorship bias. So it is the case that many or even most, I would say, of the studies that are done that show an obesity paradox are done in advanced age. Let's take someone who's 30 years old, 35 years old, it tends to be the case that they're going to be able to live long enough where they're going to be able to see the effects of that obesity exposure later on in life. But that may take 15 or 20 years to develop a chronic illness in response to that risk factor that they had, which was obesity earlier in life. 
The studies, though, tend to be done in advanced age, and it may just be the case that people of advanced age may not have enough time to live out to be able to see the effects of that risk exposure in late life. So it may just be the case that the protective effect against wasting in late life kind of overcomes the risk associated with chronic illness because the lifespans of these individuals may not have been long enough to begin with to be able to see the effects later in life. And this is consistent with what we see in the literature. There is an age effect of BMI. A recent large study published in a prominent medical journal uh, showed that older individuals tended to be able to carry more body mass as opposed to younger individuals before they saw a relative risk increase in death. But for younger individuals, this was not the case. The category of being overweight was associated with a higher risk of death. And so that kind of speaks to this age effect of BMI. The fourth explanation for the obesity paradox is that most, if not all of these studies were associative in nature, and we know that we can't infer causation from correlation data. A good example of this is that it's difficult, if not impossible, to know whether these individuals were trying to lose weight or trying to be of a lower BMI. What we do know, though, is that the vast majority of weight loss in late life is unintentional. We also know that unintentional weight loss is associated with bad outcomes. When people start losing weight in late life, that is associated with bad outcomes. We also know that it's very difficult to intentionally lose weight and keep it off. And so I think that between all of these data, we can say that there may be a real role that unintentional weight loss in late life may be giving us some of this obesity paradox that we see play out in the literature. So how do we go about addressing that particular issue? Is there a group of individuals that we can think about that we know for sure we're intentionally trying to lose weight? And there is, and that would be bariatric surgery patients. So this is an interesting group of patients to follow and learn about because they tend to be starting at a very high BMI, so they're high-risk patients. They tend to do really well after their bariatric surgeries. A recent Swedish study looked at 4,000 patients and found a 20% risk reduction in death that lasted out to 15 years. A similar study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and found that this risk reduction in fact persisted all the way out to 18 years. Now to be fair, not all studies of bariatric surgery patients have shown a benefit, but the ones that haven't shown a benefit tended to be in much older individuals, and we know that older individuals uh, have a hard, harder time undergoing surgery, and so that's thought to be the reason why some of these studies didn't show a benefit. But generally, bariatric surgery patients do very well, and it can be a very significant, life-changing surgery. Now, we've gone through a lot of explanations for the obesity paradox. The one that we haven't talked about yet is that most of these studies were using BMI, or body mass index, as their sole metric for estimating overweight and obesity. And we know that BMI is horrendously flawed, at least at the individual level. So BMI is defined as your weight or your mass in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. So BMI can tell us approximately how much fat mass is present in a group of individuals, but it can't tell us anything about where that fat mass is located on an individual. 
Now, despite the fact that BMI is a flawed variable, we can still get some good information out of it. A recent study published in PLUS One found that the years of life lost due to obesity-related diseases was up to 11.7 years off of a person's life. Some studies have found that obesity is having a larger impact on health even than smoking, and although most studies are looking at current BMI and then following a person out for a number of years to see what happens, if we instead go back and look at lifetime maximal BMI, a very clear picture emerges, and that is that higher lifetime maximal BMI is associated with a higher risk of death. So despite the fact that BMI is a flawed variable, it can still give us some useful information. The good news is that we do have easy-to-use metrics that can tell us about where fat is located, and those include things like waist circumference and waist-to-hip ratio. So these metrics are really helpful when used in conjunction with BMI. But I want to give you a good example of how BMI and metrics of central obesity like waist circumference or waist-to-hip ratio can take us in very different directions. So there was a study published recently in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that looked at BMI versus metrics of central obesity among people with coronary artery disease. And what they showed was that BMI seemed to have a paradoxical protective effect. And at the same time, metrics of central obesity were associated with a higher risk of death. And they were associated with a higher risk of death even in individuals who had a normal weight. So that's an example of how BMI and metrics of central obesity can take us in very different directions. So why then is it that metrics of central obesity like waist circumference and waist to hip ratio are associated with bad outcomes? Well, it tends to be the case that these metrics are highly associated with visceral fat. And we talked about visceral fat in the beginning of this episode and that is the kind of fat that you want to worry about. So to review, visceral fat is that kind of fat that's stored within the intra-abdominal cavity and the intrathoracic cavity is associated with insulin resistance, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attacks, and ultimately a higher risk of death. And so I think that BMI is useful to estimate approximately how much fat may be on a person, but it probably should be used in conjunction with another metric like waist circumference or waist to hip ratio. So getting back to our original question, is it possible to be metabolically healthy and overweight or obese? We're starting to see that this is probably quite difficult, but we still have to answer that question at a technical level. And this is actually where I want to focus because this is where a lot of the confusion is going to come from. This is where you're going to see the magazine article in the grocery store or uh, the video or the blog article talking about a research term called metabolically healthy obesity or MHO. So what ends up happening is that various results are published in the research and unintentionally there's kind of a trick that's being played where metabolically healthy obesity is made to sound like it's healthy. So whether someone is able to be metabolically healthy and obese depends upon the way that we define the term. So when metabolically healthy obesity is defined in a way that allows someone to have diabetes or insulin resistance or high blood pressure, unhealthy levels of blood lipids or inflammatory markers or evidence of fatty liver, and it turns out that in the research studies, over 50% of individuals with obesity are classified as metabolically healthy. 
However, when we use more stringent criteria that are much more optimal for metabolic health, we see that the picture changes enormously. So a recent study using about 140,000 different patients across North America and Europe found that when metabolically healthy obesity is defined in a way where there can be no evidence of metabolic dysfunction, so normal levels for blood lipids, no evidence of diabetes or insulin resistance, normal blood pressure, healthy ranges for inflammatory markers, and no evidence of fatty liver. When metabolically healthy obesity is defined in that way, only about 7% of individuals who are obese are categorized as metabolically healthy. So that changes the picture from 50% in some research studies down to 7%. So this is why you have to be careful when you're reading the magazine article or the blog article about metabolically healthy obesity. It really depends upon the way that they're defining this. Scientists currently think about metabolically healthy obesity mostly as being a transient state. It turns out that about 30 to 50% of individuals with obesity who are metabolically healthy will convert to an unhealthy form of obesity throughout their lifetimes. We also know that the risk of converting from metabolically healthy obesity to unhealthy obesity increases in older age or if someone has a poor diet and if they gain additional weight or if they smoke. But I think it's useful to study those individuals who do have true metabolically healthy obesity because there's a lot we can learn from them. It turns out that these individuals who are both metabolically healthy and obese have a higher capacity for exercise. They're more physically active. They have lower amounts of time being sedentary or inactive. And they also have lower levels of blood inflammation markers. They have fewer pro-inflammatory cells within their fat tissue, and they have more anti-inflammatory cells in their fat tissue. And the current research is starting to shift and focus on this idea of exercise capacity because it's probably so critical for metabolic health in the setting of obesity and at large. Now, there is a caveat to all this. Although metabolically healthy obese individuals have a lower risk of death compared to metabolically unhealthy obesity, it is still the case that even in metabolically healthy obesity, these individuals have approximately a 50% increased risk compared to lean individuals of having a cardiovascular event, like a heart attack. So we've talked about what it is that makes fat healthy and unhealthy at a general level. Let's shift gears and talk about how to transition our fat stores into a more metabolically healthy state. Now, the very highest yield way to do this, to transition our existing fat stores into a more healthy state, is via exercise. It turns out that even in the presence of obesity, exercise does a number of beneficial things for our fat tissue. So the first thing that exercise does, even in the setting of being overweight or obese, is that it sensitizes our fat tissue to the effects of insulin. So we talked about the importance of this in the beginning of the episode, and we talked about how the normal role of insulin is to suppress lipolysis, and this is important because we don't want our fat tissues to be leaking fatty acids out into the surrounding tissue and into the circulation. We talked about how that's associated with inflammation and triggering of cell death in distant organs. So that's the first thing that exercise will do for us. Exercise in the right setting can also start to bring down the size of the adipocytes 
It also improves our ability to use fat for fuel. We talked about this in our last episode. It increases our ability to transport fatty acids across the cell membrane. It results in increased mitochondrial biogenesis, and it also activates cell pathways that protect against aging. So to highlight how unbelievably important exercise is for our future health, a 2018 study published in JAMA Network looked at about 120,000 patients, and what they found is that the risk of death conferred by a low ability to undergo cardiorespiratory exercise, so a low fitness level, was comparable or more important than traditional clinical risk factors like diabetes and smoking and even coronary artery disease. So this is huge. If we extrapolate these data, if we take someone's fitness level from a low fitness level to an average fitness level, that theoretically cuts the risk of death by half over a decade. And if we then go from a low to an above average fitness level, this is associated with a risk reduction in death of about 60 to 70%. So exercise is critically important for our future health. Now, just about any kind of exercise is going to be beneficial for most people. Please do obtain the approval of your own physician before starting an exercise program because not everybody is healthy enough for exercise. But to be able to get the most out of cardiorespiratory or cardio exercise, it does need to be done at a level that elevates our heart rate, at least into what we call zone two. And this is approximately about 50 to 70% of our maximal heart rate. So there's a way, it's a crude way to be able to calculate your maximal heart rate. And that is to take 220 and subtract your age from that number. So if you're 35 years old, you take 220, subtract out 35 from that, and that puts you at about 185 as being your maximal heart rate. Some people may notice that their heart rate goes higher or lower than this on maximal exertion. And again, this is a very crude formula to be able to approximate this. There are more sophisticated formulas out there. But then what you would do to calculate 50 to 70% of your maximal heart rate is multiply that number times 0.5 or 0.7. Now this is again, a crude metric. I personally am a fan of the Maffetone method, which is a bit more of a sophisticated way to target your ideal heart rate for adaptation to aerobic exercise. And I'm going to put a link to the Maffetone method down in the description below if you want to check it out. There is something also to be said about high intensity interval training. I think this is a great way to compress the time it takes to exercise and get those cardiorespiratory benefits. The caveat that I would say to this is that I think it is associated with a higher risk of injury. So I think, especially when someone is first starting out, I think it's important to be done under the supervision and guidance of a trainer so that you can reduce your risk of injury. Now, another way to begin to transition fat stores into a healthier metabolic state, particularly in people who need to lose fat mass, if you're overweight or obese from that perspective, is actually through the process of weight loss itself. And I'm not talking about arriving at a particular number uh, on the scale. I'm not talking about the end destination. It turns out that the process of weight loss itself, so going from one fat composition to another, is associated with a number of beneficial changes in fat tissue. And in particular, this is associated with a lower size of the adipocytes. It's also associated with lower levels of free fatty acids. And we talked about the importance of that. And it's also associated with lower levels of inflammatory markers in the circulation like CRP 
and inflammatory mediators like TNF-alpha and interleukin-6. And this is really important because we know that inflammation is one of the uh, cornerstones of so many of the chronic diseases that we see today. So we talked about a lot of concepts in this episode. We went over general principles of how to know whether certain types of fat are healthy or unhealthy. And then we started in the center of the controversy, the obesity paradox, and went through some of the research on that, suggesting that the obesity paradox is a little iffy. It may have its role in some situations, but the vast majority of research is pointing towards and is quite conclusive on the idea that obesity is associated with harmful health outcomes. We also talked about BMI and its limitations in alternative metrics like waist to hip ratio and waist circumference and how they're associated more with visceral fat stores. So these can be very helpful. We also talked about how to begin to transition our fat stores into a healthier metabolic state. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about some of the brain changes that precede even the external manifestations of overweight and obesity. We're also going to be talking about how food can hijack our appetite regulation centers and how nutrient excess can disrupt the ability of our fat and brain to communicate. If you want to support this channel, the very best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button and the like button, leave a comment down below, share these videos with your friends. Please also head over to nicksterling.com where you can find the sign up for the newsletter for any announcements that we may have. You can find me on all the major platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify with the ID SterlingMDPhD. And with that, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other healthcare professional services. The content of this podcast is not medical advice and should not be interpreted as medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. You should not attempt to implement any of the topics or concepts discussed on this podcast without the direct approval and supervision of your own physician. This podcast should not take precedence over the information provided to you by your healthcare provider or official public health sources. Listeners should not delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have. The use or non-use of the information provided in this podcast or any associated or linked materials is exclusively at the user's own risk. Please visit nickstrowing.com for relevant disclosures and full terms of use.